From New York City, this is Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penzener. On this podcast, we discuss topics near and far from personal finance. Any questions or comments, I can be reached at mark.penzener at bernstein.com or call me directly at 212-969-6655. Maybe the most frequent question I get asked today is, what do I do with my cash? And although it sounds like a simple question, it can get complicated really fast. To delve deeper into this topic, I've asked my colleague, Amanda Beebe, to join the conversation. Amanda is a financial advisor at Bernstein Private Wealth Management. Amanda, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Mark. So Amanda, I I take it you're probably talking a lot about cash as well. On a daily basis, just like you said. And Mark, why do you think that is? I I think it's a few things. Um, Look, we're coming to this conversation in March where markets are at or near an all-time high. And when markets are at an all-time high, I think people are, are, are nervous and scared to deploy cash, right? They, nobody wants to buy when the market's high. Um, everyone wants to buy when the market is low. The, the weird thing about that is when markets sell off, everybody's scared and nobody wants to buy. So I think you get people who get stuck and paralyzed in this cash conundrum of markets are high. I don't want to be the last guy to the party. party. Markets are low. And they're going to go down. I don't want to buy them now. And, and we meet with people who for years have been stuck betwixt and between and have been sitting on cash. No, they shouldn't have been, but, but kind of can't get a plan in place. I think there are also people who think, you know, cash is king. It's liquid. It's there. It's safe. And I think they need to think about what are other middle grounds because cash yields today are virtually nothing, right? So are there places where you can just make a few percentage points? maybe give up a little safety of principle, but you're better off in the long term. And that's tied to the notion that for, for some of the people we talk to, they are really sophisticated about markets and yields. And they're looking at the bond market thinking yields are low, they're probably going up. So why do I want to own bonds now? I think that's contributed to a lot of cash on the sidelines. And then also, we have seen through this period of time, although we see it all the time, where I think there are two phenomenons. People have gone through a transaction, so they sold their business, and they come into cash and now they're like, well, what do I want to do with it now? What's the plan? Is this the right time? It's COVID. Or people who are working at you know, companies, think about you know, the market's up a lot since last year, especially in the tech space. And we meet with lots of people who have reduced their exposure to their company stock because they say, wow, my company stock's at an all-time high. That's great news, right? They're doing great, but they sell the company stock and now they don't know what to do with it. So that cash gets built up there as well. Mark, is there any way to know how much cash is actually out there and whether it's an unusual amount? So the best data we have on that comes from the Fed. Um, so the total assets, according to the Federal Reserve, held in money markets, surged over a trillion dollars, that's T with a trillion, in the first half of 2020 and, and now stands at about $4.4 trillion. So that's a lot of money in cash that's got to find a place to go. And, and I think that's one of the reasons we're having this discussion, right? It is not unusual for us to be talking to people who are on more cash than they otherwise typically are and are trying to figure out what they do with it now. So if someone is sitting on cash now, how should the, how should they think about that position? Um, I, I'd love to tell you, I think there is a, a hard and fast rule. If you're in cash, you know, do this equation, ask yourself these questions and, and boom, here's the answer. I don't think it works that way. I think there is a context to this conversation that's really important. So how and why did you get to the place that you're sitting on X amount of cash 
informs what you do with it going forward. And, and we can maybe walk through some of those different scenarios. But if you're someone who's just been slowly accumulating cash and are scared of the market, th that's a different challenge than someone who had a great investment strategy, was sticking with it, understandably got very scared during COVID 12 months ago, went to cash and is now trying to figure out, I had this good plan, I sold at the wrong time, how, how do I re-put that together? By the way, that's different, although all these people are in cash, than the people I discussed prior who sold the business wound up in cash for a corporate executive who sold some company stock and now is in cash. These all have very different dynamics. I, it, it is actually not a one-size-fits-all answer. It is a one-size-fits-all question. I've got too much cash. It's earning nothing. What do I do about it? What you do about it actually becomes very unique to your own circumstances. So then let's, in that case, assume you're an investor who sold out of the market, has just been sitting in cash for a period of time and is scared of the market, getting back in. How would you advise that person? So I think someone who is in cash, at least materially in part, because they're nervous about the market, has to step back. Because for most of our private wealth investors who are not thinking about day trading or on the other side are not institutional investors, right? If, if, you're, if you're a high net worth individual and you're thinking about, these are the things I want to accomplish in my life with my money, retirement, purchase of a second home, charitable things, providing to the next generation of your family, wh whatever those things may be. And that's going to inform our answer here. But you have to think about it over a longer period of time. Right? If you judge putting cash to work as to whether or not it was the right decision over the next day, week, or month, honestly, I think it's a toss-up, right? Markets do not go up every day or every week. But what we know is markets do go up over time. I mean, that has been tried and true since the dawn of the stock market. And so one way to think about it is to compare historically, what if I put money into the market every time the market was a bear market, so it was low, it had just gone down by 20%, versus what if I ended up putting money into the market if I put it in kind of near the top, right? Almost every time it's near the top. And we can run that complicated analysis, but here's the answer. Yes, it's obviously better if you buy low, right? Of course. Now, it takes a lot of gumption to do that, but if you do, if you're buying consistently in those 20% or more declines, over the next period of time, you're likely to earn about 11.5% or historically you've earned 11.5%, okay? The average return, if you were always buying at the peak, again, just the stock market is 9.6%. Okay, I agree 11.5 is better than 9.6, but 9.6 buying at the quote unquote worst time when the market's near its top is a heck of a lot better than cash is. And I think it's important to put that in context. Part two is, you know, the market isn't like an EKG meter where it goes up and down and up and down and up and down and it kind of flatlines. It's always going up over time if you zoom out. And so roughly half the time, the market was in, is within 5% of its all-time high, which means most of the time you pick up the, the newspaper or you turn on TV, market is near its high. It, it just mathematically has to be because it's a slope. It's a mountain that's always going up. If it wasn't like that, the, the slope of the line wouldn't go up. It'd be, it'd be jagged up and down like that EKG meter. So I think you have to acknowledge, oh my God, half the time the market's almost always going to be near its high. Okay, forget that. And by waiting, A, I have to have the, the fortitude to buy when it's really cheap. B, I don't know how long I'm going to wait and when I'm going to miss waiting. 
and, and see, it's not that much better than if I even put my market in at the high. Again, that's not my recommendation, buy it at the peak. But buying at the peak, if you have time, is much better than waiting in cash. And what about someone who either maybe just sold their business, received a large bonus, or maybe sold company stock for the company that they work at recently? How would you advise that investor? So I, I, it depends, right? Um, what, what I'll often see, use the example you talked about, someone who works at a, a company and is, and is thinking about or has sold some of their company stock. Um, I, I see what we would think of as a barbell approach, right? So they wind up having a portion of their balance sheet still in the company stock, and then a portion of the money in cash. And, and what they think is, and, and in some ways this is right, I'm taking risk with the company stock. In many cases, it's restricted, meaning they can't sell it. So I might as well be really safe with my other money to, to like a barbell, balance out those risks. Conceptually, I think that's right. The, the question is, how much risk reduction is cash actually giving you? And are there any alternatives that would be of a similar level of risk reduction as cash and do better over the long term. And so one of the things we did is we looked at over a 20 year period, right? If you're in that example of I've sold some of my company stock and now I've got cash, or by the way, you could get there from any different way, right? It could be your investment portfolio. What's the pro and con of having that cash position, right? And so the, what we did is comparison, we thought about it over 20 years. And over that 20 year period, we said, okay, what if you have 100% in cash that's not in the company stock? And scenario two, put 80% in really high quality tax-free bonds and just put 20% in the market. So your 20% stock, 80% bonds, what we would call a very conservative portfolio as opposed to all cash in the non-company stock account. Here's what we found. Um, you can look at different stress points. What's the chance I lose 30% of that portfolio? It's actually no better from a risk reduction standpoint if you have the 2080 portfolio all, or the all cash portfolio. Like all cash is no better at reducing risk than 20 stock, 80 high quality bonds. Whether you look at a 30% loss or a 40% loss or a 50% loss, the all cash portfolio isn't a better barbell then the other side of the barbell being 20% global stock and 80% bonds, right? Okay, so if you say to me, it's a wash, then why do it? The reason you do it is cash earns you very little and the 20 stock, 80 bond portfolio doesn't make you a lot, but it's significantly better than cash. And so this is the way we thought about it. We thought about someone who was sitting on $10 million, projecting that out over the next 20 years, and in an average market, just going from all cash to 80 bond, 20 stock, which I would tell you is really not gonna produce much anxiety, increases in the average market, someone's wealth by over $3 million. Wow. Even in terrible markets, it's almost $2 million. Cause you're just, you're getting nothing on your cash for a decade or two, right? And just going to 2080, which I would tell you will, will basically keep no one up at night. I mean, a few people it will really adds to the money in one's pocket and still achieves that goal of barbelling against all of the stock. That's true. That's significant. Now, are there strategies to make people more comfortable with putting cash to work? Well, one is don't look at your portfolio. 
Um, <laughs> no, I, 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 I say that in jest, right? Uh, so, so there, there are, um, but I, I do think that notion of, you know, don't overlook at the portfolio is actually relevant, right? Because if you're scoring these decisions, as I said before, day to day, week to week, it, it's going to be maddening. It's going to be frustrating. And frankly, half the time you're going to be wrong, right? So you, you got to take a longer view. But one of the really practical ways to address this notion of getting out of cash, because the thing that worries me when I talk to clients who sit on too much cash is that I'm going to have the same conversation with them two, three, four, and five years from now. And I would rather a client or an investor go from cash and be in that prior example, 20 stock, 80 bonds, and you know, make up a number, earn 3% and complain about the 3% return to me five years later, then be in cash and have earned nothing and still be stuck five years later. And by the way, five years from now or two years from now, the questions are still going to be the same. Either the market's going to have just sold off and they're going to be too scared to invest, or the market's going to be at an all-time high and they're not going to be the one the, want to be the last person to the party. There's like never a moment that feels like the perfect time to buy stock, right? Nope. So one of the ways we approach it is this notion of dollar cost averaging. This is not um, like weird science, right? I mean, this is pretty well known, but what it says is, in a very regimented way, I'm gonna take my cash and on the first of every month, the first of every quarter, there are different strategies for this, regularly, slowly add it into my portfolio. Now my portfolio doesn't have to be the stock market. It could be that 20 stock, 80 bond portfolio. So if you have a hundred dollars or a million dollars or $10 million, if you're doing this over 10 months, one tenth of that, so $10 million, the first month, $1 million. And if it's going 2080, now only 200,000 of your $10 million is going into the stock market. So you very slowly, regularly deploy your capital into the market. One of the strategies we thought about with dollar cost averaging is what's the optimal amount of time? Do you do that over a year? Mark, you just said 10 months. Is that right? Does it, do you do it over two years? Do you do it over three months and a quarter? How do you think about it? So we, we ran all those numbers. Remember, I just said the markets are typically going up. So the longer you wait, statistically, you're cutting into the growth of the portfolio. But it's definitely true that if you put money to work today and the market collapses by 30% tomorrow, it was better to not have bought. So, so we have to now evaluate all the historical data and think about what that means going forward. For us, the ideal period of time to dollar cost average is, is six months. The trade-off of what I might give up on the upside versus the potential benefit I get if markets go down, six months is the statistical right number. For some people, that'll still feel too slow or, or too quick, excuse me, and they'll push it to 12 months. Beyond 12 months, I, I get a little hesitant, but you know what? If it's going to take someone 18 or 24 months, that's better than having a cash conversation 18 or 24 months from now. The other thing when you dollar cost average in is, if someone dollar cost averages in month one, month two, month three, and, and they're getting the experience from the portfolio that, that they hoped for, low volatility, high return, medium return, whatever it is, you're meeting the expectations. It builds comfort and also allows, because there's more cash, that if there is a really attractive moment to buy stock or any other asset, Psychologically, they're more willing to do that because they've built comfort with the notion of investing. And then they say, look, I, I've gotten what I expected from this portfolio for three, four, five months. 
Stocks are now discounted by 10 or 15%. I want to be a buyer. I get how this works. I, I understand. And so dollar cost averaging, not only mathematically can help, but I think the, psych the psychological benefit is really important. Now, for our listeners right now who are probably studying their balance sheets adamantly right now, listening to everything that you have to say, is there a way that- They're asleep. <laughs> Hopefully not, but possibly. Are there ways that investors should frame their cash or maybe their wealth more broadly? Um, I think for a lot of people, buckets help. And, and maybe there's a better analogy than buckets, right? But I, I, or, or, or visualization than buckets. Where you think about whatever money you have, and look, it's all your money, right? It's, it's, it's yours or yours and your spouse's right to do what and how you want with the money. These buckets are not meant in any sort of legal way. It's just ways to frame your mind. And I, I think there are three buckets you can set up in your mind and then practically in your investment portfolios, like you literally segregate the different accounts. I, I do that myself. The three buckets I think are the, the near-term one, right? Money I'm gonna need in the near term. I'll talk more about that in a second. The core bucket, I'll define that in a moment. And then the excess moment, the excess bucket. So three buckets. Um, some people don't need all three. Some people only have two, that's fine, but I'll, I'll take you through the three. The, the near-term one is, is for a number of different things. Um, expenses that might come up in the next six, 12, 18, even stretch it to 24 months. You know you have a tax liability because you sold stock, you sold your business, you sold a house. Um, who knows, right? So anything a tax liability is going to come, you know, the next April fifteenth. You want to have that money in cash. If you are going to make a major purchase or you have an expense, I'm going to buy a home. Um, I'm going to start a business, right? Something you know that's going to be capital intensive. Some people think, oh, just three months from now. I would say if it's a year to two from now, cash is a fine place to be to know that that money is taken care of. Um, and then some people want to have just a general expense reserve. They say, look, I spend $100,000, $200,000, dollars a year. I want to know that's liquid. I don't want to think about my spending. I want to have a spending account, right? That is cash or, or money market, very, you know, very basic investments, not even bonds. That's secure. So that's the near-term bucket. You fill that one first. The second one, the core bucket, is really what your long-term investment strategy should be. We do lots of discussions and analyses and models to figure out what the right strategy is for the core bucket and how much money should be in the core bucket. Let's just say someone's strategy should be half stock, half bond. I'm grossly oversimplifying it. That may be the bucket where we use the dollar cost averaging strategy to get an investor or a family up to the right long-term target strategy. The third bucket is excess. Sometimes we call it opportunistic. It's money that you're really not thinking you're going to use anywhere in the near future or for your retirement. It could be for um, a business you always dreamed of starting if you know the, the timing and the finances were right down the road. It could be for a charitable endeavor. It could be for family. It could be for a second or third home that you had dreamed about but didn't know if or when would work. It could also be a place where you just want to really take interesting investment risk, right? Because it, it's interesting and attractive to you to try and have outsized return. That bucket, I wouldn't have cash in that bucket. And, and it's unlikely I'm going to use a dollar cost averaging strategy because that money is so long term. You want that money invested as soon as possible for as long as possible at as high of a rate of return as possible. And near term risk or volatility shouldn't really scare you in that bucket because you're, you're kind of psychologically building in. Yeah, that's, that's my risk budget. Bad things could happen in that portfolio, but over the long term, I'm going to get paid for taking those type of risks. 
And how do you think best about cash from an investment point of view? How best to deploy it once you're ready to finally pull that trigger? So I, I think once you say, okay, I've got a strategy. I'm going to dollar cost average. I'm not going to dollar cost average. I've got my bucket set up. I'm, I'm going to pivot with what I'm going to do. I think one of the things someone who's, who's trying to maybe be opportunistic about their money is to think, what's my investment preference? And I would also say to you, I'm going to frame it in four different quadrants, but you could be one, two, three, or four of the quadrants, right? Different buckets might look like different um, quadrants. So for instance, you might say, look, I wanna be a liquid investor and I don't wanna take really contrary opinions. I, I, I wanna kind of go with the consensus in my investments. And so if you're gonna do that, you might own index funds, right? You might own growth equity. You might own high grade fixed income. I mean, you know, things that are easily liquid, that are not controversial or overly compelling or contrarian. Nothing wrong with that, right? There are other investors who say, I need liquidity. I like liquidity. I don't like lockups. I get that. But I really want contrarian investments. Some people like that in their core portfolio. Some people only want to do that in the opportunistic space. And in other podcasts and webinars, I've talked about those opportunities in value equities and small cap and international it feels really easy to say that in March when all three of those, those parts of the market are doing so well this year. But thankfully, we're on record three, six months ago saying, hey, those were contrarian opportunities that you really should be looking at. And, and, and that looks smart today. There are other investors who say, I don't worry about liquidity, right? I don't need this money for a while. And if you're willing to be illiquid, which means I can't get my money out of the investment, um, in, in layman's terms, you know, your house is a liquid. You, you just can't sell it and get the money out tomorrow, right? You know, how illiquid, we could debate that, but illiquid. In, in the illiquid space, there are alternatives investments that are very contrarian. But there are also illiquid investments that are non-contrarian today. Hedge funds, private equity, hex backs, right? I mean, we can debate the, the value of each of these, but I do think it's relevant to sometimes frame your investment portfolio and how much liquidity do I need? And am I trying to run with the crowd or am I trying to run against the crowd? And, and in some places, maybe I'm trying to do both or in one bucket, I'm doing one and one, I'm doing the other. Well, Mark, how best do you think you can tie a bow to wrap up this conversation on cash altogether? What are your final thoughts? Um, I, 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 I think the biggest takeaway is the notion of planning and not one size fits all. And I, I don't mean to say that in a, um, kind of a trite or soundbite type of way. But I, I really do think if you're gonna, if you're in a position where you have a bunch of cash, it is really relevant to have a conversation with me or your financial advisors or professionals about why, how'd you get there? What are you trying to accomplish? And, and how do you sort of get moving with a plan? Because as I said before, the, the, the fear for me as a financial advisor is that I'm having the same conversation with a client year in, year out and I'm not getting them to take action. And almost always some action, even a little action is better than inaction. And I think sometimes people feel like they don't wanna make the wrong decision and deciding when to invest does expose you to the wrong decision, right? I picked the right time, I picked the wrong time. But, but I would submit that if you don't, you're actually making a decision to not decide, which as weird as that sounds, that's a decision to say, I'm gonna punt and not think about this. And that is a decision. 
it's not so clearly right or wrong because you don't have to live with it in the market or in your statement every day, but you do have to live with what that opportunity, opportunity cost was over the week, over the month, over the year, in some cases in the bad extremes over a decade. And, and now those long periods of time is where real wealth is created, where you just get to compound on your money. And missing out on that time value of money is crippling you, in, in finance and in all aspects of life. You can't get that time back. And when we're talking about compounding, it, it's so critical in, in what we do. So I, I hope, Amanda, that was the bow you were looking for for this discussion. Well said. Thank you, Mark. So, so Amanda, thanks for joining. To our listeners, feel free to email me at mark.penzener at bernstein.com. Or as I said, call me at 212-969-6655. Happy to have one-on-one conversations about this or any other topic we've covered related to finance or, or other webinars or podcasts that we've done. Make sure to like or review this podcast wherever you listen to it. We really appreciate that and it helps others find it. Until next time, 